there's an old joke that goes, how many people are buried in Highland Cemetery? The answer is all of them. Hi there, my name is Shoshana, and I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library. Welcome to the library's podcast, Ipsy Stories. Ipsy Stories is a podcast about the history of Ypsilanti told in story form by historians, academics, community members, and local experts. This podcast seeks to unearth stories and perspectives that may be new to you and are often unheard. Our hope is that by listening to these episodes, you'll gain better understanding of our collective past, present, and future. The views expressed by each guest are their own and do not represent the views of the library. Today we're going to be learning about the history of Highland Cemetery and of previous cemeteries in Ypsilanti from local historian James Mann. James Mann is a local historian and writer. His books include Wicked Washtenaw County, Wicked Ann Arbor, and Wicked Ypsilanti. He is a regular contributor to the Ypsilanti Gleanings, the publication of the Ypsilanti Historical Society. All through history, every community has had to deal with the problem of what to do with those who have died. This was a mark of civilization as the rituals and rites were expanded. When the first settlers arrived in what is now the Ypsilanti area, the native people had burial mounds along the river. These, sadly, have been covered over with business blocks and are no longer to be seen. The first settlement in Washington County was Woodruff's Grove, founded in 1823. Although most of the people there were young and healthy, the first death occurred in the 1820s, Walter Oakman, an Irish immigrant. His remains were later transferred to Highland. Woodruff's Grove disappeared and the Ypsilanti community started, and it too had to deal with the problem of what to do with those who have died. The first cemetery in the city was at what is now Michigan Avenue and Summit Street, now the site of a liquor store. Bad jokes of spirits abound, but fortunately, I don't know any of them. This cemetery had ultimately contained about 250 graves, was unfenced, and was neglected. Finally, in the 1840s, a new cemetery was started east of the city. As to what became of the remains in the first cemetery, it's unclear if or when they were transferred. Years later, People talked of how the children would dig up bones and then be sent back to rebury them. But the new cemetery was started. It too held many people after it was found in 1844. But in time, it proved inadequate and a need was felt for a better cemetery. An association was established in 1863. They acquired the land overlooking the city on a high bluff, leading to the name of the cemetery, Highland. Now, up to this time, 
cemeteries were seen mostly as a place to dispose of dead people. There was little interest in cutting the grass, planting flowers. Churchyards were full of graves and became overcrowded and unkempt in cities. And this was before the age of burial vaults and embalming. So sometimes the water in the neighborhood took on a funny taste. Highland was well suited for a cemetery. The original 40 acres were purchased and James Lewis Glenn, an engineer from Niles, was commissioned to lay out the grounds. He established roadways, parkways, and simply cemetery blocks in geometric patterns, including an elf shoe, teardrop, Maltese cross, Star of David, and others. This was following the tendency of the rural cemetery movement, or garden cemetery. This was a movement that had started in Boston with Mount Aubin's Cemetery, the first true attempt to make a cemetery beautiful. The movement went westward, and Highland is probably the finest example in the state of Michigan. The dedication was held July 4th, 1864, and the music was conducted by Frederick Pease, for whom Pease Auditorium at Eastern is named. After Highland opened in 1864, the old cemetery is now Prospect Park, fell into disuse. And of course, there were plenty of graves there. In about 1893, a group of women decided to turn the old cemetery into a city park. The city parks movement came out of the rural cemetery movement. They began the work, but as one newspaper put it, a mania broke out among the women, and within a year, all but two were married. A new committee was formed, men and women, they continued the work. The city purchased property in Highland for the transfer of the remains. Someone was commissioned to carry out the work, and one by one, the bodies were moved from the old cemetery to the present. Then for two years, corn was grown on the old cemetery site, and then it was turned into a city park, now Prospect Park. Of course, there's no guarantee they got all of the bodies out of there, there's a persistent rumor that 14 are still there, though the city at the time denied it. Highland has grown to about 100 acres over the years. And the grounds contain flowers of various kinds. Also nature, many different species of animals and birds are seen. Every now and then, bald eagles will perch on the trees there. Highland Cemetery is a model of the eclectic tastes of the Victorians. Highland contains many models of cemetery symbolism, including such symbols as the hands in farewell, a hand pointing up, and a rare symbol of a hand pointing down. This most likely means touched by God, not the one everyone assumes first, as in sudden death. Other symbols are the dove carrying the soul to heaven, roses, the weeping willow, a sign of mourning. The most moving symbol is the lamb especially the sleeping lamb, which symbolizes the grave of children. There are many of those, as child mortality was quite, quite high in the early years. Symbolism of the cemetery also includes open Bibles, open books, wreaths, and one headstone shows an open Bible at the top, a wreath, and inside two hands clasped in farewell. Sadly, this is the grave of a couple who died of a drowning accident in Ann Arbor. Their funeral occurred on the day they were to be married.
There's also two graves of brothers who died in the late 1930s, natural causes after being shot. They were bootleggers and were shot by a rival gang and now rest comfortably in Highland. There's also the sad story of two sisters who died in the Jonestown flood. One was a teacher in the community, the other went to visit her. A dam gave way due to heavy rains that had been neglected. And a wall of water hit the city of Jonestown, Pennsylvania, killing 2,200 people. Two sisters were killed in the flood. Details are not known, but to recover the bodies, a dentist was sent from Ypsilanti to examine the corpses and identify them from their fillings, which must have been a horrendous experience for the man. The two were brought home and now lie side by side in a nice little monument. There are numerous other monuments, such as the Grant Monument, which stands high, built by Edward Mock Grant to honor his family. His father, Elijah Grant, died in 1851 on the day of the Great Fire that destroyed the downtown area. The story goes that the flames were licking the front of his house while his body was being carried out the back. His widow purchased a building that is now the Ladies Literary Clubhouse and moved in there and lived for the rest of her life. There is a story that Elijah's will carried a provision that said Edwin would not inherit if he married during the lifetime of his mother. This apparently because he was concerned over the strained relationships between a mother and a daughter-in-law. Edward, as it turns out, could have used either a good wife or good mental health care. After his mother died, he became somewhat eccentric and would leave the house dressed in the fashion of the day, top hat and tails, walk up to Michigan Avenue, take a pose in front of a store and stand stock still. Later, he would be seen at the next storefront and then later to the next one. He continued this all day. He also made a number of investments and ended up having to sell the furniture in the house piece by piece, room by room. And in 1913, he sold the house to the Ladies Literary Society, and they have preserved it ever since. He moved into an apartment behind one of the business blocks facing Michigan Avenue, and the last is known of him in 1919 when he fell down the stairs and broke his collar. He was taken to a hospital in Ann Arbor, where it was reported that he stared up at the ceiling, blinking. There was no record of him being buried in Highland, so he's probably in a potter's field in Ann Arbor. Another monument, actually a mausoleum, is the Brayton Mausoleum, the first mausoleum in Washtenaw County, commissioned by Jenny Brayton the year after her father died, 1910. It contains her father's remains, her mother, her husband, and herself. Jenny married late in life, had no children, and now this beautiful mausoleum stands in Highland and no one comes to visit. There are at least 16,000 souls interned in Highland. I say interned because there are those who are buried in their graves, and those in the mausoleums are not buried, they are entombed. Near the entranceway of Silent Cemetery is the most distinguished building, and that is the Starkweather Chapel, a gift of Marianne Starkweather in the 1880s as a memorial to her husband, John, who had died. Chapel is built in the Richardson Romanesque style of architecture and was designed by Mason and Rice of Detroit, premier architects of the day. The building is made of sandstone 
and is decorated with Tiffany glass windows. One, a memorial to John Starkweather, another to John D. Pierce, the first director of public education in the state of Michigan, who was responsible for the founding of the Normal School and under whom John Starkweather had worked years before. John and Mary Starkweather are buried a little distance behind this chapel, and standing by their grave is a statue of Watch, John Starkweather's favorite dog made by the same company as the Soldiers' Monument. The dog is not there, but is one of three dog statues in the cemetery. Anyone enjoying a pleasant walk in the afternoon can look around for the other two. They're there, waiting for nice people to come and pet them. The chapel was originally intended for services in inclement weather and also for services for those who had to travel far. The chapel has fell into disuse over the years and has recently just been restored, and soon it will be available for service again. The restoration is beautiful. The wood has been restored, the pews have been restored, the Stephanie stained glass windows have been cleaned and are ready. This is a monument to the past, to the present, and the future. Near the entranceway is the receiving vault, a gift of Daniel L. Quirk, one of the original founders of the cemetery. The receiving vault was for those who died during the winter months when the ground was too hard for the, for the burials to take place. So the bodies had to be stored and they'd be placed in the receiving vault over the winter months and then buried in the springtime. It was also used as a place to store bodies to keep them safe from body snatchers, grave robbers, which in the 1800s was something of a problem, although only one body is, is known to have been stolen from Highland. Still, the fear was there. Medical schools, including the University of Michigan, could not get enough cadavers, dead people, for the anatomy classes. So they had to acquire them illegally. The University of Michigan at one point had a network of some 40 suppliers. All of these were out of state because a rule was made early on not to acquire cadavers too close to home. Some people got angry, and some medical schools were burned to the ground by mobs enraged over this practice. Deciding to avoid this, the University of Michigan got their bodies from places like Ohio. But then institutions in Ohio may have had similar policies. So some of our Ypsilanti people may have ended up in Ohio schools. At the north end of the cemetery is an area that looks like a cleared field nicely cut grass. This is the potter's field, where those who could not afford their own burial were buried by, at the expense of the county. Sad stories of poverty, neglect, people who died suddenly. This is where many were buried. The term potter's field comes from the New Testament. After the trial of Jesus, Judas Iscariot went to the temple and told the high priest he had caused the conviction of an innocent man. They said, what's that to us? And Judas threw the 30 pieces of silver into the temple and ran off. Since this was blood money, it could not be put back into the treasury. So instead it was used to buy a field that had been owned by a man who made pots, a potter, and was used for the burial of those who died at Jerusalem while visiting. The soldier's monument at the south end of the cemetery was dedicated Memorial Day, 1895, and was the work of Florence Babbitt. 
she had chaired the committee that had raised the money for the monument. And she had asked Marianne Starkweather for a donation to finish the work. And Marianne gave $10,000 for the work. Florence Babbitt was a remarkable woman who was also interned in the cemetery. She headed the Women's Relief Corps during the Civil War and over the years headed just about every organization in the city of Ypsilanti. In 1900, she was president of a Civil War Veterans Association. I used to say that, that had women had the vote, she would have been mayor. Then I found out that a few years before she died, a delegation went to her house and asked her to run for mayor. Up in years and in declining health, she declined, but she probably could have won. A special thank you to Sam Killian for all his work on the Ipsy Stories webpage. We couldn't do it without you, Sam. A special thank you to local musician Annie Palmer for providing music for this podcast. You can check out more of her music at anniepalmermusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ipsy Stories. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. You can subscribe to Ipsy Stories wherever you find your podcasts. You can also explore previous episodes with additional resources at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. If you have ideas or story suggestions, you can get in touch with me at shoshana at ipsylibrary.org. That's S-H-O-S-H-A-N-N-A at Y-P-S-I-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Thanks for listening all the way to the end of the episode. In our next episode, Jerome Drummond will take us to the very roots of Ypsilanti's industrial growth. That episode should be dropping next week, but if you don't see it next week, keep your eye out for it later in November. If you don't want to miss out on other future episodes, you can always subscribe to Ipsy Stories on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tell all your friends and neighbors about us too. Bye now.